Sans, sans. Um, so, uh, good morning. Um, thank you all for coming. My name is Teresa Santana, and as a member of the organization, I'm very pleased to welcome you to this event. Um, just before we get started, let me just uh, thank the Mystic Institute, not only for making this event possible, but also for promoting um, the Catholic intellectual formation, not only in events like this one, but also at universities, in the church, and in the wider public square. Um, we are indeed very grateful to receive today the Thomistic Institute in Lisbon and to have among us these two great Dominican theologians, Father Thomas Joseph White and Father Simon Francis Gain. Uh, today, they will have the challenging task, and it is indeed challenging, to introduce us to the Thomistic philosophy, to understand slightly better what it means human nature, philosophically speaking, also what is the theological notion of grace and how one relates to another. Throughout this conference, we will discover how St. Thomas Aquinas offers a clear analysis of these questions, and perhaps for some of us, it might be quite surprising to see how his answers remain so relevant nowadays. Um, just a quick note regarding the schedule, which I presume many of you might have seen on the website. We will have two lectures in the morning and two lectures uh, in the afternoon, each followed by a short time of approximately 15 minutes for questions and answers. Uh, we will also have two coffee breaks, so one in the afternoon and another in the morning, and the lunch time will be from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. Uh, without taking too much of your time, let me just say uh, it is a great joy for us to see so many people interested in learning more about these topics. And let me also say that we were gladly surprised to see registrations from so many different countries, including, well, Portugal, this one not, not very surprisingly, uh, but also Spain, Italy, uh, Germany, Turkey, um, Zimbabwe, and the United States of America. Um, let me also say it is an honor for us to have the presence of the Portuguese royal house in this event in the person of Dom Afonso de Bragança, um, Prince of Beira and Duke of Barcelos, who very kindly accepted our invitation to be here. Uh, we are very honored. And finally, and I promise I'm almost finishing, I would like to quote uh, Father Thomas Joseph White in his book, The Light of Christ, um, in which he says, the spiritual quest of the human person for truth, goodness, and beauty can be deferred and even denied for a time. But it cannot be eradicated. Our souls will not be satisfied with mere information as if our hunger for knowledge could be quelled by uploading data. Google provides endless facts available in an instant, but we want understanding, insight, and wisdom. We want to know why and what for. We wish to perceive everything in the unending light of what is and cannot not be. Our hearts are restless with the desire to know the truth. So just to conclude, we hope that this event may indeed shed some light on that quest for truth. Thank you. So thank you. Uh, I'm here to present Father Thomas. Father Thomas Joseph White is rector of the Angelicum, the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome. Uh, he studied at Brown, Brown University and Oxford University, and he entered the Order of Preachers in 2003, having directed the Thomistic Institute in Washington, D.C. for several years. His research and teaching have focused 
particularly on topics related to Thomistic metaphysics and Christology, as well as Roman Catholic Reformed uh, Ecumenical Dialogue. Among his books are included Wisdom in the Face of Modernity, a study in Thomistic natural theology, The Incarnate Lord, a Thomistic study in Christ Christology, Exodus, The Light of Christ, an Introduction to Catholicism, and The Trinity on the Nature and Mystery of the One God. He is also co-editor of the journal Nova et Vetera, a distinguished scholar of the McDonnell Agape Foundation, and a member of the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas. So thank you very much, and let's welcome Father Thomas. Thank you. Dear friends, thank you so much for coming this morning, and I'm grateful to our kind hosts and organizers, and it's a great joy and privilege for me to be back in uh, Lisbon. And uh, I think the understanding is that Father Simon, Francis, and myself, we will both make a few words of introduction about institutions before we begin. Do you, is that what you would prefer, Father? Short. So I'm the rector of the Angelicum in Rome, and so I'll say a brief word about that. The Angelicum is one of the seven pontifical universities in Rome. It's the university founded by and managed by the Dominican order, and it's named for St. Thomas Aquinas and is very committed to co uh, continuing his intellectual heritage in philosophical, theological studies as well as the social sciences in politics and law. And uh, we have a 1,000 students from 100 nationalities. And uh, it's a wonderful community in downtown Rome, in the center of the city on the Quirinale Hill, where uh, our students pray together, uh, talk to each other, study. We have 200 lay people of the 1,000 students, 200 religious sisters, 600 priests and seminarians, um, and so, you know, just to let you know that if you're in Rome, please come visit us. And, of course, some of you may wish to study at the Angelicum. I've already talked to one of you about it today. So you're always welcome to think about this as an option for the future. And Father Simon, would you like to say a word about the Thomistic Institute briefly? Our university has four faculties, but there are also a number of institutes which are either engaged in teaching or research or both. The Angelicum Thomistic Institutes involved primarily in research into the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas, but really to make him a living voice in the debates that go on in philosophical, theological debates, other important intellectual discussions in our time to make St. Thomas's voice a living voice in those discussions. We don't teach our own courses, but there are five professors at the Angelicum Thomistic Institute. You can see two of them in front of you, but we all teach in one or more of the faculties of our university, so we're all engaged in teaching. But as well as research, the main work that we do, we say it's one of outreach. So we try to support different groups outside the Angelicum, outside Rome, 
who are interested in coming together to discuss St. Thomas Aquinas and the importance of his thought in the world today. So if there are those groups around Europe, Africa, Asia, wherever, we're looking to help support them to give advice on topics that they could have speak events on and also to give some advice on who would be good speakers on these topics. We help then to bring the speaker to wherever they are, whether it be France, Spain, Germany. We had a, an event, uh, first event in Germany in Munich this week, just gone. And um, we bring the speakers there and then we help the students or whoever they are to meet the speaker informally as well as listen to them lecture. And that's the kind of outreach work that we do. So that's the Angelicum Thomistic Institute. Thank you all for coming today. It's good to see so many of you. And now I'll hand over to the first speaker, Father Thomas Joseph White. Okay. Our challenge today is to look at Aquinas on nature and grace, two magnificent and challenging topics. I'm going to speak to you probably for the next 30 to 40 minutes uh, about the first aspect of this, understanding nature in Aquinas, causality, hierarchy, and inclination. And I'm going to focus on human nature. Now let me just warn you that the first talk is probably of all the talks going to be the most challenging intellectually because I'm just going to front load at the beginning a lot of information about human nature. And if you haven't had a deep study of Aquinas on nature, you're going to get a, a lot of exposure here in a kind of postcard version. With, you know, it's like when you get a postcard from a friend in very small handwriting and you're trying to read all the, decrypt all the writing. Well, I'm going to shove a certain amount of information into the first presentation. But the, your patience will be rewarded because as we go through the day, uh, I think Father Simon is far clearer than I am, so that's one thing. But we'll move up the hierarchy uh, into the spiritual realm and into the realm of grace, and strangely, it will become more intelligible. Um, because Aquinas begins the analysis of nature with movement and physical movement of non-living things which are moved by other things, but don't move themselves, and then the movement of animals or plants or human beings that are self-moving, self-organizing realities. So we're going to look at the hierarchy of self-movement in human nature to identify degrees of life. I'm really just gonna concentrate on human nature, and I'm not gonna treat skeptical questions like whether we can know there's anyone in this room, whether we can know there are living things, I'm just going to presume that we can know that there are things, I mean, there are other arguments we could have about that, and that we can know that there are living things. And I want to look at the living human thing and try to figure out what living human nature is. So one of the facts that we begin with is it looks like human beings have different operations or activities. And these different activities are expressions of different degrees of life. There are hierarchical degrees of life. This is the big theme of this first lecture, and I want to try to argue for this or illustrate it. So 
how do we even think about human activities? Aquinas, I'll, I'll refer to the handout, but I won't read from the handout much. Aquinas starts with what he calls activities or operations ordered towards distinct specific ends. And from those ends, he looks at different kinds of operations that indicate powers. I'll return to this theme multiple times. So let's start from the beginning. Living things, especially human living things, are complicated, and they have different kinds of operations. You are, for example, sometimes digesting food. You eat breakfast. It's a kind of operation. Or you're trying to solve a mathematical problem. It's a different kind of operation. Or perhaps you're driving around town. It's a different operation. You're trying to see the road clearly with your eyes and indicate using decisions where the car should go. One way to begin the analysis is to think about the ends or what Aquinas will call the objects of the various operations. The ends indicate the operations, the operations indicate the powers. So in the way of knowledge, in the way we discover things, you have to look at the object first. So what's the end or object? Object here means the same thing kind of as, as purpose or end. What's the purpose of eating breakfast? digestion and nutrition, which, which shows you that you have an operative capacity as a vegetative reality to nourish yourself, and that that nourishment is one of your powers, a power of the soul, Aquinas will say. So you pass in the way of understanding our discovery from the object of the operation to the operation it indicates to the power in the soul. Or if the, end, if the object or end is mathematical truth, it shows you have an operative capacity to mathematically reason, which shows you have an intellectual power. If you come home and you have mathematical homework and you ask your pet dog to solve your mathematical problem for you, you'd be strange. That's because you realize intuitively that, you, or that the animal does not have the power of mathematical knowledge. But you could expect the animal to eat its dinner if you serve it to it, and you wouldn't do this in the same way for the plant. And you wouldn't worry about the plant dying. You worry about the plant dying when you're away, but you don't worry about the chair dying. Right? So there's different operative powers oriented towards certain ends. If you think about it developmentally, there's the formation initially. You go the other direction, from, operation, from end to operation to power. You start with power, you move to operation, you move to end. So there are human powers. Take a baby, a newly born child. What's the main power that we're worried about? The nutritive power, the operation of, of feeding itself, of being nourished, and then digesting food and staying alive. So that's the end that we attend to. But eventually the child will start to learn sensibly and form memories and be able to put together concepts and then we'll see the sensate and intellectual powers emerge in more perfect operations, and we'll talk about the first word the child says. Has the child started speaking? What was the first word you ever said? How is it you know, putting together sentences? When is it beginning to say no and make negations, or yes and be obedient? And then how does the child begin to develop a kind of moral sensibility of love and decision-making? Right, so we see powers that emerge through operations and then the operations pursue certain 
They're oriented to certain objects or ends. Now, there's a lot of powers in the soul, um, but some of them are interconnected to one another at, at the same level of hierarchy. So you can talk about how you can group certain powers together at these, at these three levels that we'll call the, the vegetative dimension of the soul, the sensate dimension, and the spiritual or intellectual dimension, okay? So I'm going to explore these in this lecture. The vegetative powers, the sensate powers, the intellectual powers. To do this coherently, you have to see how the powers coordinate in view of similar ends, again, objects. And here we have to pay attention to what's called technically teleology, or the study of ends. Towards what various vital operations or activities do the powers tend? what powers of the soul are manifest in their operations. So let me start with the vegetative life. Now this is a huge difference between Aristotle and Aquinas on the one side and most of the modern tradition, uh, like Descartes or John Locke on the other side. Aristotle in the De Anima on the soul begins his analysis of the human person by looking at the vegetative life of the human person the body, as a body that grows, that nourishes itself, that repairs itself, and that can reproduce. That's the animality in its most basic root of physicality that Aristotle thinks indicates our human identity. As where Descartes looks at his intellectual life first, and he's skeptical in the meditations about anything existing around him, and he tries to prove that things exist, so he works from the intellect out to the body, Aristotle begins with the body, and Aquinas does as well. So what is our vegetative life? And by the way, why am I calling it vegetative? Because none of us are vegetables. But that being said, we have something in common with the plants and the animals at the most basic level of living, you might say, living ecumenism. Plants, animals, and human beings all share in the vegetative life. And what characterizes the vegetative life? Living bodies that have vegetative life practice the power of nutrition. They take elements into themselves to nourish themselves so that they can assimilate nutrients and uh, order their internal organic powers. This is already true of one single cell. A, singular, uh, back, a single cell bacteria has a periphery. It brings in nutrients in order to nourish itself and assimilate. This is certainly true of plants. We know about how they assimilate through the air, through carbon monoxide, through light, photosynthesis, and through their roots by taking in nutrients from the soil. It's also true of animals. Now they use their senses, which I'll talk about in a minute, to pursue food that they're going to assimilate, but they still assimilate food. And we, as sensate animals, also assimilate food. It's a very humble place to begin looking at human identity, but it's physically realistic. And Aquinas starts with that animal realism that we are vegetative beings that assimilate nutrients in order to nourish our bodily organs so that we can sustain ourselves in existence. Now, a second, there's basically three vegetative powers I want to talk about. The first is nutrition. The second 
is growth and self-repair. So a living being typically begins as a single-celled organism, and then it grows and develops. It has various organs, whether the organs of a plant or of an animal, in our case, human animal organ, organic life. The organs develop, and they arrange themselves in complex systems. So we have, in biological systems, we have a capacity for nourishment, reg uh, respiration to take in air, blood circulation, sensate organs, and so forth. Right? There's an organic structure that's developing in the embryo, in the fetus, in the small human being that's born, and then as it develops into a mature life, you see the human biological organic powers developing into complex systems. So growth is a dynamic feature that's fueled by nutrition. After the, the being is, when, when the being begins to, to gain nutrition, it then begins to grow. And if it's harmed or if it suffers a setback from disease, it has a natural capacity to repair itself to a certain extent. Obviously, we can die from illness, but, or there are things we cannot repair. But there's a certain self-reparative aspect of a living being at the vegetative level. If you cut off the branch of a plant, it can heal itself. It can start to regenerate, right? So we trim back plants, and then we that develops their affects their developmental growth. And then the third perfection of the vegetative life is reproduction. So mature plants put out seedlings and reproduce. Mature animals reproduce their like kind, and mature biologically mature human beings are capable of sexual reproduction. Right? So this is something common in different ways to all living beings, from the single-celled organism to the plant, to the animal, to the human being. Nutrition, through assimilation of, nutri of nutrients, through its own self-movement, uh, growth and self-repair through complex organic structures and eventual reproduction. It's very commonsensical. It's so basic that it's experiential, un almost unquestionable. But notice it's not just a materialistic vision, as if we looked at the organic material parts or the atomic parts. What we're looking at is how all the parts, organic, chemical, and atomic, are arranged within a living, vital organism that has a substantial unity. One plant, one animal, one human being that's a substantial unity growing and developing. This is a kind of fundamental realism of the scholastic tradition. So now I pass to sensible life, sensitive life. This is not present in plants. There are maybe some anticipations in more complex plants of something like the sensation of touch. The sensation of touch is the most basic, fundamental, sensate capacity, but you don't find it in plants. You do find it even in the most basic animal, animals. Aristotle gives the example of the oyster. The oyster is not a very complicated animal. It has effectively primarily the sense of touch. If you touch the oyster when you're diving, it will close up because it senses a threat. Yeah? It opens in order to nourish itself. So sensate powers are the first place we see what we could call cognition or knowledge. There is a certain kind of knowledge, even in the oyster, 
closing to protect itself. Uh, the most basic insects, the mosquito flying through your room, trying to avoid you killing him. Uh, this is an autobiography from this morning. <laughs> he has knowledge. He's, he knows something. He's, cogniz he's got cognition, sensate cognition, seeing. Okay, so what are the five senses? Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Not all animals have all of them, but any sensate reality has some of them. The most basic is touch. The most sophisticated are hearing and seeing because they can lead to sensate memory, which I'll talk about in a minute. So you have the external sense powers, and the more highly evolved and complicated the animal, typically the more refined the sensate powers. So one of the ways we can trace in evolutionary theory the developmental complexity of a being is to look at the development of certain seeing capacities or hearing capacities, like we look at the development of the eagle seeing or the dog hearing or the human being's refined sense of touch. Uh, these are ways we see the kind of developmental capacities that have emerged for survival and flourishing in human animals or other animals over time. But the more important, more pre-intellectual forms of, of cognition that sensate is in the internal sense powers. Um, the simpler the animal, the less the internal sense powers. The more complex the animal, the more complex the internal sense powers. So what am I talking about? Well, the easiest one to talk about is imagination. Imagination is not just the images from seeing. You also remember the songs you've heard. Sometimes you can't forget the songs that you are remember that are in your imagination, in your in your uh, in your yeah your imagination. Uh, so you have sense you have sense impressions. I should actually say sense memory. I, I'm being should be more technical. You have the sense memory of things you've seen, things you've heard, things you've touched, things you've smelt, things you've tasted. Huh? So there's the sense memory, and then in the sense memory, there's something Aquinas calls common sense. He doesn't mean good judgment, like I have common sense about people or things like that. That's intellectual. He means that your mind isn't just, sorry, your sensate power as an animal. I'm not just right now, uh, you're, you right now are not just seeing me. You're also hearing me. Oh, uh, so, uh, but something in your sense power, uh, the animal in you, is putting those things together, coordinating as an animal, not intellectual, as an animal, coordinating what you're seeing with what you're hearing, and maybe also with what you're feeling, sitting in the seat, which you know you can spatially coordinate with the idea that you're sitting out there, I'm up here. The animal in you is doing all this pre-rationally. You don't command yourself to do it. If I threw a ball at you right now, one of you would pick up your hand, and, um, probably a male who's played ball, but you'd pick up your hand and you'd, you'd catch it because you're used to it because you have the spatio-temporal coordination. This is common, what he calls the common sensible power to take the memories and the, and, and the actual external senses and coordinate them. So if I took a baseball and I threw it at you, you'd know from memory what a baseball is that's coming at you, the motion, and you'd be able to spatially recognize it and put together your powers and catch it. So you have the internal common sense power, uh, and then you have imagination. 
Imagination is not just the memory of the song or the memory of the picture you saw in the museum. It's when you begin to creatively represent. You start making a song. You start painting a picture. You start writing an essay that's in your own writing using your capacity of your sense powers to represent things. You don't just know reality as an animal, you also appreciate or love or hate reality. So you have what's called the uh, estimative or cognitive faculty regarding the goodness or the badness of something sensate. So if we cooked uh, a plate of chocolate dessert and it came out of the oven and you could smell it, uh, you would perhaps have in your sensitive estimative faculty as an animal the capacity not only to remember the smell of chocolate but to sense that it's something that you might enjoy eating. Or if we walked out on the street and you saw the cars going by, the animal in you might avoid walking into the street because you have an estimative power that's telling you that that object is dangerous. It's not just your intellect, it's also the animal in you estimating something's dangerous. The dogs and the cats avoid running in front of the cars. Not always, but mostly. <laughs> right. Why do, how can they do that? They have this estimative power. So what's interesting is you see through the assimilative power of the memory and the uh, common sense that there's knowledge. The animals have knowledge. But there's also loves and hatreds. So if you take the animal, like your, your, you take a tennis ball and you hold it in front of your dog. If your dog has learned the game, when you go like this, the dog is very excited and it runs. He has appreciated through his memory, he knows how the game works through his memory and his common sense judgments, his common sense cognition, that the game is that I throw the yellow ball. But he also wants to do it. He his estimative power is that this is fun or delightful or somehow, yeah, it's an emotional joy, which brings us to the last uh, aspect, which is not only do you have knowledge, you have love or, or, or detestation. When the dog is running to get the ball, he avoids running in front of the car because he knows it's a danger to him. It's quite extraordinary. Then there are emotions. And the emotions in us are more spiritualized, but they're present in the other animals that are most sophisticated. You can find them in the complex animals that we usually keep around us for domestic purposes, from horses to dogs to cats. So some, it's whether cats have emotions is an interesting question. But um, actually, that make, tells you a lot about people, how they judge whether cats have emotions. But, you know, maybe dolphins, complicated pigs for sure. So... Passions, Aquinas studies uh, 11 passions in animals that are most sophisticated in us, namely uh, emotional or passionate love, hatred, desire, aversion, joy, sorrow, hope, courage, despair, fear, and anger. Now, you can't find these as in, in, in any, any anything like the rich way you find them in a human being, but you can find them to some extent, for example, in the great apes. They study the great apes, you know, and they look at their emotional life, and you can see sadness or you can see hope depending on the stimulations. What are the stimulations going to be mostly about 
the nutritive and reproductive conditions and some limited degree of animal sociability. The, the great apes could get angry at each other if they're rivals over food or tribal designations uh, or settings with regards to the protection of their young. You can, make a, you can make a female ape very angry if you endanger her young. This is true also of wild boar. If you get between a wild boar and her young, she could kill you, right? You know that. So that's interesting. There's, like, there's anger in the animals. These are all, you would say, this is a very strange way to start talking about nature and grace. But what it does is it alerts us to the fact that we are animals. And the way that we have to live out our intellectual and moral lives as spiritual animals is deeply enrooted in our physical condition as living beings with vegetative powers and affective sensate powers. If we cannot become good human beings as animals, we cannot become good human beings. If we cannot become graced spiritual human beings as animals, we cannot become graced spiritual human beings. And this kind of gritty corporeal animal realism is a good way to understand the specification of the spiritual powers that makes us different from the other animals without falling into angelicism, the angel-like analysis of the human person you find in Immanuel Kant or Rene Descartes, which abstracts from the body and which in a way never can, after having severed with Aristotle and the scholastic tradition, they never really find their way back to the body. So they have super sophisticated things to say about reasoning and about moral responsibility in Kant, but there's very little to say about the physicality of the body and what it means, which means there's very little way to understand the integration of the human being as a spiritual animal or a rational animal. So now I want to talk about, um, just uh, last, the intellectual or spiritual powers, the intellect and the will. So the intellect is a spiritual power that's capable of universal, of abstraction from singular individuals to produce concepts that are universal in kind. All of you here have the same human nature, so Aquinas thinks, that I can understand. I mean, I'm giving a lecture on universal human nature, and I can do that using concepts that are universal in character. So if I say, for example, every human being has vegetative and sensate powers as well as spiritual and intellectual powers, that statement is universally true, if it's correct, for every human being who has ever been or ever will be throughout the whole of the human race, whether I've ever met them or ever will meet them. And of course, I never will meet them all. But the statement is true of that nature for all human beings, whether they're embryo or old person, whether they're whatever, male or female, whatever their race or color or class or background, all of them fall under the universal designation rational animal, as understood according to this hierarchy of three powers, vegetative, sensate, and intellectual. Now, the other animals do not abstract universal notions through their experience of the natures of things. They don't analyze the causes of things, the essences, formal causality, the origins, efficient causality, the constitution of what a thing's made of, the material causality, 
or the purposes, final causality. The reason we can abstract the causes, efficient, formal, material, final causality, in a universal form, is because we have an intellectual power. It's working through the senses, five external senses, internal power of memory, internal power of imagination, affective judgments, common sense faculty, and the passions or motions. In and through all of that animality, the intellect is going out into the world and it's abstracting universal knowledge of causes. That's called apprehension. When you come into this room and I see you, obviously the animal in me receives a sensate impression through sight. And my memory as an animal, I can remember what a human being is because I've seen many of them and I am one. But my intellect immediately apprehends you're a human being. It's not a reasoning that I have to prove to myself. It's just properly given by intellectual apprehension, human being. There's a time when the child passes from many images and concepts and, I'm sorry, images and, exp and sensate experiences and hearing the parents stimulate the child over and over with words saying man or human being to going into the abstraction saying, mama, that's a human being. That's a car. That's a house. Universal abstractions begin to be made and then expressed linguistically in the conventional language of whatever the child is you know, educated in. But once we start to make apprehensions, that fundamental power of the in intellect is there. And then we can begin to make judgments. It's not just, I grasp human being, I say, that is a human being. That human being has rational powers. That human being has moral capacities. That human being has a different nature and dignity than the great ape, or than the dog, or the dolphin, or the kangaroo because there's a different nature present, judgment. From apprehension, we pass to judgment, and from judgments, we pass to reasonings. So for example, I apprehend that Socrates is a human being, and I judge that all human beings are capable of laughter. So then I reason that Socrates, who is a human being, is capable of laughter, even though I've never seen Socrates laugh. Very serious person, Socrates wasn't tickled enough as a child. But if I tell Socrates enough jokes, he may laugh. So, because I know from knowledge of Socrates it's reasonable, or that Socrates is mortal, or maybe that Socrates has a spiritual soul. And then, so you have apprehension of concepts in universal mode, you have judgments, this man is mortal, this man is risible, uh, or this is a man who is risible. And then you have reasonings. Yeah. Um, and reasonings can be practical and speculative and you get into more complex judgments. Reasonings terminate in more complex judgments and you might say even in apprehensions. So you go deeper into reality and you make more and more reasonings and judgments. Like, do you all have spiritual souls that subsist after you die? That's a difficult question. That I can't immediately apprehend. But our arguments Aquinas gives help me conclude demonstratively and he thinks with certitude that you all have spiritual souls that subsist after your body has decomposed. It's a big judgment philosophically. He thinks you can demonstrate that. If I have made that argument in a way that I think is demonstrative, then I can judge really that you have spiritual souls. Or can I judge that God exists? Or can I judge that God doesn't exist by demonstration? These are more complex forms of reasoning.
when we begin to know things, we begin to love them or prioritize our loves for them. In other words, from knowledge comes spiritual desire and spiritual love. Why do you like spending time with this person? Well, he has these qualities. She has these qualities. I like this about this person. I like this about that person. And then from that, the appreciation of their goodness of their personality follows you from knowledge of the goodness of a person to the love of the person. And so then we can make intentions. What do you intend to do this weekend? I'm going to spend time at a very boring philosophy conference with Dominican priests because a friend of mine is going and they're making me go and I like spending time with the friend and it's part of the loyalty of the friendship that I have to spend time listening to boring Dominicans in order to prove my friendship. That's an intention. And then you make a choice, like even though it's raining, you get in the car and you go there and then you, you, know, you choose, you elect to do it. And it, there's, a, there's a moral life that dra- derives from knowledge. And we don't have these other, th- this is not going on in the other animals. When the lion eats the zookeeper, we do not put the lion on trial for the murder of the zookeeper. By respect for the zookeeper and human, and because now the animals tasted human flesh, we might kill the animals so it's not a danger to other human beings. We, but if the zookeeper kills the other zookeeper, the zookeeper goes on trial because there's been a morally deliberate act. There's something different about this animal. It can commit murder, right? I mean, the lion didn't murder the zookeeper. The lion just killed the zookeeper. The deliberative act of taking human life through intrigue, as you see in Dostoevsky's great book, uh, um, Crime and Punishment, where he details the psychology of the decision to commit the crime. This is an act of the moral human person. Anyway, so um, this is to say we, ha- we are subs. Now, uh, just a few more thoughts. I think I'm at about 35 minutes, but I'm going to continue just for a, minute, a little bit more. Um, None of these operations, vegetative operations, sensate operations, or intellectual and voluntary operations, none of them are identical with the whole human person. So if you come out of this lecture and you are walking around and say, I am my operation of intellect. I am my intellect. I am intellect. You've misunderstood Aquinas. It's kind of more like Descartes, but it's, you know, Uh, Or if you say, I am a moral person, I am morality, I am morality. You have moral operations in you, you have intellectual operations, but you also can't come out and say, I am digestion, (laughs) I am digestion, I am imagination, right? That's a funny way of saying that these are operations or of the powers of the soul, but they all are operations of the whole human composite. We could call that in Aristotelian language, a substance a living being that's a whole, having a natural kind. What is the living being that each of us is as an individual? The substantial individual of each of us is a human being, having human nature. Human nature is a composite of body and soul in which the soul expresses itself through these three manifold, these three, this threefold uh, form of powers, vegetative life, sensate life, and intellectual life. It's all coordinated. Something in us is coordinating it all. Your intellect is coordinated with your sensations. Your sensations are coordinated with your digestion. It's all working together. You don't have to make it work together. You can't make it work together. It just does work together because some coordinating power is organizing everything in you 
through these, this threefold hierarchical mani manifestation of powers. And that's what we call the soul. We haven't said yet if it's immortal. We haven't said what it is. We just say there's a power organizing everything in the body according to this threefold hierarchy. And that's where you get the idea of the soul as a principle of life. It, and it, the, it's manifest in the vegetative life, in the sensate life, and in the intellectual and spiritual life. I'm just going to finish by saying that there are three degrees of interiority, and you can see it through a manifestation of assimilation and then outward teleological movement. Think about it this way. At every level of life, vegetative, sensate, intellectual, something's coming in and something's going out. But it's at deeper and deeper levels of interiority and it's at less levels of biological substantiality. What does that mean? Let me explain. What's the most fundamental assimilation of the, of the vegetative life? Eating food. So just take a simple example of a, an apple. You eat the apple. You're taking something from outside yourself and you're assimilating it into your biological organic life. The digestive process is going to break down the nutrients and assimilate them into the life of your body through the digestive process, the, the uh, circulation of the blood to bring the nutrients to the various organs, having extracted the nutrient properties from the apple or the steak or whatever it is you ate, right? So that's something physical and it comes into your biological life. What's the possible outcome that would go out from the mature living being on the vegetative life level? Reproduction. When, for example, man and a woman conceive a new child, the conceptus in the womb, the embryo is a distinct being from them, a new human individual that has been produced from their bodies, which is rather amazing. They have this new third reality that is now growing and developing in its autonomy, eventually to be a distinct being. This is true of other animals, of course, and it's true also with plants. They put out seedlings. The seedlings become distinct plants. Right? So we're bringing things in, and, we're, and then we can export. We can export physical reality uh, of living beings out into the world. Obviously, with human beings, having a human being is of a major moral importance that we invest with huge you know, responsibility, but that's interesting. It's not just like the seedling or even like an animal having you know, uh, a uh, uh, an offspring. A human child has a different kind of dignity to it. That's an interesting philosophical question. How do we know that? Why do we believe that? And so forth. It's got to do with the spiritual soul and human identity, human dignity. On the sensate level, we're bringing in sensate intentionality. So like, for example, right now I'm seeing kind of orange-red, a lot of orange-red. And that's because I have eyes. And I'm seeing like this, this room has got this really intense uh, orange-red you know, uh, atmosphere. And I'm hearing you sometimes you know, speak or laugh or whatever. And I'm hearing myself. Those things are coming into us right now. And you're hearing that or seeing that, OK? Um, what that, what that can produce in us are certain kinds of emotions or desires or attentiveness. So like right now, there's a certain gentle way in which your senses are being occupied by listening to the lecture or by thinking about what you're hearing as you see something, like a person gesticulating. So there's like 
something coming in and then you can go outward. It would be stronger if we put out some kind of very appealing food. You know, like you would, you, your sensate life, you wouldn't really be thinking about nutrition, like those amazing pastries that you all have. I can't remember what they're called, but they're like the best pastries in Europe. You know what I mean, they're like the famous thing. And we would put out like 300 of them here, right? You wouldn't be thinking, oh, I need to nourish myself for my biological integrity. You'd be thinking about the memory of what those things taste like, and then you'd be going to eat them because you would be delighting in the movement of the enjoyment of the senses, like the sensate animal life. It's at the service of the nutritive life, but it has a certain kind of autonomy. Now that's more interior to you, because really, like say for example, what you're sensing or what you're feeling emotionally as an animal, I'm not sensing or feeling necessarily. You say to me, look over there. I say, what is it? You say, oh, well, I see that. And it's meaning something to you. You're having some emotional experience. I don't feel it. Or I'm having an emotional experience. You don't feel it, all right? So there's a, there's a way in which there's something interior to you, more interior than eating food and having children which is like much more physical objectively. And then the highest level of interiority is the intellect and the will. The intellect is taking in universal truth. That's really the level of the deepest human communion because we can commune as rational animals in the truth, which is something very deep inside each of us. Like what is a human person? Do we agree on that? Do we have the same conception of the human person? Do we think there are spiritual intellectual operations going on in us? Or do we think it's all biological matter? So if we have an intellectual capacity to take the truth into ourselves, we also can love the good that we perceive. For example, we could come to love God if we know of God. Or we could come to love other human beings. We could share common friends. We could share common admiration for Mozart's music or something else we've come to love and appreciate intellectually. So human beings can be bound together, not just by what they take in, but by the movement outward of love. The intellect brings in the truth, the will goes out to the thing beloved. So for example, in friendship, you get to know someone, you think, oh, it's a nice person. And then you appreciate their qualities, like, I, I really like this person. And then you, have an, you acquire friendship for the person. The, the work, the, the movement of but the will of love is a movement to be a, a drawn to the goodness of the other person outwardly. So it's very interior, and it also moves outward to the reality known. Yeah? So it's not assimilated like the apple. Yeah? So the way you would like, assimilate a friend by like, consuming them so they are like part of you, <laughs> that are emotionally trying to capture them in an emotional experience. Real friendship is intellectual, spiritual, you appreciate who they are for their own sake, and you want to see them flourish on their own terms. It's not passionate or vegetative, it's intellectual and voluntary, spiritual, but you love them for their own sake. So that's to say then, there's this kind of mysterious unity of the living subject, and I'm gonna finish now, that's uh, able to navigate. This is the challenge of being human. If we were just angelic, intellect and will, we would be simpler. Or if we were just plants or animals, we'd be very simple, uh, somewhat simpler as a plant than as an animal, but we would be unaware of ourselves in some real sense. I mean, the animal has some self-awareness, but not deep intellectual self-awareness. But we are neither angels nor animals. 
We are rational animals, spiritual animals, personal animals, or you could say we are corporeal persons. And so the drama, the difficulty, the challenge of being a human being is to live out our vegetative and animal, animal sensate life as spiritual animals or as rational and free responsible agents. And that's where you get into the whole world of the virtues of living in a virtuous way in the intellectual virtues, the artistic virtues, and the moral virtues, living a complete human life of flourishing. Okay, so that's just to say there's a kind of uh, philosophical vision of the living human animal that gives rise to an ethics and also to a vision of art and to a vision of human learning that acknowledges our interdependent animal rationality as the condition for human